Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back to See Also. I'm Brody Lancaster. And I am Kate Jenks. BL, how are you feeling today? I feel ratchet. I don't want to talk about it. I have oh, either no. I either have influenza, the formal name, or rhinovirus. <laughs> I don't even know what that second one is. I think just like a bad cold, but um it's not COVID, but it's fucking something. And I don't I know that every other episode of this podcast this year has been one of us being sick. Not a great audio medium for a stuffy nose, but, you know, how do parents do it, et cetera. This is a result of having a fun week um, and being touched and coughed on and loved by my niece. So, you know, it's a small price to pay. <laughs> worth it, worth it. Worth it. But we've both been in the wars, Jinxie. You fell. Yeah. You had a fall. <laughs> I had a fall last week. I slipped down some marble steps that were very wet and um, fully stacked it, like really stacked it. I've got the bruises to prove it. No. But uh, it's like it's it's all ego. It's all ego. Like I was totally fine. But then I did revisit some of my favourite cinematic falls and I felt much better about the whole thing. Yeah, who who were you, who did you fall like? <laughs> One of my favorites would have to be when Carrie falls in Paris in the Dior store. Mm-hmm. That's a great fall. Mm-hmm. Sandra Bullock in every single film she's ever been in. She trips, yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman in Along Came Polly is a really spectacular one. Yeah, yeah, it really is. He was a bumbly guy when he needed to be. I like imagining you with like a full body bruise, like you've just come home from like a mosh. (laughs) (laughs) Like Jinxie was in the pit. (laughs) I haven't been in a pit in a while. You're in the opposite of a pit in a marble hallway. (laughs) Yeah, it was like some front steps. But anyway, I'm fine. I've, I've, um, it's weird. Winter, I can cover up. It's all okay. <laughs> yeah. What have you been doing while I've been stuck at home blowing my nose? Uh, well, I mean, festival is due to begin in a matter of days. So that's what I have been doing. I have watched some bad things, of course, on mm. television, as I like to do. Uh, been a little bit behind on the new Rahoni, but that's fine. We'll get there. Oh, I've given up on Crappy Lake. It's a shocking turnaround from last week. What happened? I just got halfway through episode three and... and so I like was, six minutes in. 
Yeah, and I was, like, doing other things as well. Like, I wasn't even sitting down just watching Crappy Lake. I was just like, there's there's nothing to that show. There's nothing to it, but also I, I'm going to need you to come back for the inevitable, like, Waiting for Guffman finale of their big talent show, right? The Follies. I'll watch the Follies. I'll come back for yeah. the Follies. I'll come back for the Follies. Sonia will absolutely take her clothes off at the Follies. Yeah, I mean, hopefully oh. Richard will be there, the man she's... I don't know, going mudding with. I don't know. I'm just like, I don't want to watch these two doing a, an activity known as mudding. Like, I don't need that in my life. Um, huge news from mm. the Love Island community. Last week I talked about Love Island Season 5, which famously aired in 2019. Molly May and Tommy Fury did just get engaged over the weekend. Uh, Marzel. Yeah, yeah, they've got their, you know, obviously their baby daughter, Bambi, um, which we love. (laughs) Do we, BL? I love them. You know this about me. You are on your own island with uh, this one, I think. (laughs) I'm in Casa Amor alone. Um, (laughs) And uh, this is the first of two mentions Love Island is getting this episode. It's going to come back later. There's going to be a callback. That's just a little teaser for for something I'm going to mention later. All right. What else? Oh, I... I've been meaning to bring up a show that I'm really enjoying mm. that is not getting any critical love because it shouldn't. It's um, the rebooted Location, Location, Location. I was a big LLL fan as a child. Well, it's back. <laughs> I remember I remember being living in like suburban Queensland watching Location, Location, Location and they'd be like, this house in Melbourne sold for $500,000 and it would be like the biggest house I'd ever seen in my entire life and me and my mum would be like, what? Who could even afford that? Yeah, well, hard times change. It's it's a a shocking show these days but I'm watching it because Mitch and Mark, two of my favourite contestants from The Block, are hosting it now. They're a gay couple who dress like Peter Allen, basically, um, a lot of florals, a lot of frills and are really emotionally invested and I think it's Mark who in the first episode cried when a deal went through. He was just, he felt so much um, emotion uh, around the couple that he was helping. I haven't done anything this week, obviously, except go to the movies twice, which we'll get to. Yeah, same. Um, yeah. Same, same, same. Yeah, that's all that's on the roster. I've pretty much only been to the movies two this week, but something that I keep meaning to bring up, BL, every week is my irritation. God, I sound so cranky this episode. I'm not. I'm not. I'm in a very good mood. Uh, but my irritation at restaurants post-COVID not post post lockdown, whatever. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, still enforcing banquet menus for six plus people. Mm. Mm. I'm not into it. I've Me had neither. a few bad, I don't know, experiences of this recently, and I feel like all that you have to do, even if there's two of you, but they do like a package or lunch or dinner, like on a Sunday, mm. say, mm. Um, won't name the restaurant that I really like, but if you go there on a Sunday, you have to get this fixed menu. You might just actually just want to sit in front of the fire and have a drink. But anyway, um. Um, unnamed. This is like on the first episode of Rahoni where yeah. <laughs> there's so much restaurant drama that I could not keep up with on the first episode. Yeah, apparently it's half, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, look, it's just it's, it's it's irritating me, BL. It's irritating me. Yeah, I get it. I went, look, I went to a restaurant right before seeing Oppenheimer um, a couple of nights ago and chose it for its proximity to the cinema but also because it was like a Sunday night and it would be a quick and easy dinner. It's like a Chinese restaurant. And um, has a great reputation. Have been to a different location of the same chain. Also, not naming names, but it's near Hoyts and Docklands. <laughs> and so you can figure it out. And my friend and I went there, and me being a bit sick, um, I was like, I just want a soup. And I ordered a wonton soup. She ordered an entree. There's a fucking a third of the restaurant is full, not even that, like a quarter of the restaurant's full. And 
it took like 20 minutes for our entrees to come out and they brought me chicken sweet corn soup which has that gelatinous texture that I hate it's like drinking snot and then we're just waiting and waiting and the movie started at 7 30 and it was 7 10 and we were like hey we have to leave at 7 30 and they gave us a lecture about not ordering the banquet when it's really busy and we looked and not telling them that we needed to leave by early and my friend Sarah said Oh, but we weren't in a hurry when we ordered because we ordered 45 minutes ago. And That's I, fair. as she was doing that, I just passive aggressively, <laughs> I'm not proud of this, but looked around the restaurant, looked around the like third full restaurant being like, you're too busy to make us the chicken and vegetable dish with rice that we ordered. Hmm. Yeah. So I was fuming. Fuming. Yeah. Look, I've just had, yeah, a couple of times recently where it's like, I get it. I think you should have to be in a private room to have an enforced banquet. Mm-hmm. I think it's great to have an option of a banquet if you've got a big gathering and nobody wants to choose and it's always down to the same person to order everything all the time. Me, yeah. <laughs> but I want the I want the choice. And also yeah. people have, I don't know, someone's coming only for a drink, someone has to leave after the entree, what mm-hmm. have you. Mm-hmm. This is reminding me of my birthday dinner that you were at Jinxie because I have a note in my phone of everything that I just like decided for the table we were ordering and it just says two steak, two octopus, two eggplant, two prawn, two potato, two tomato, two cucumber, three bread, oysters. Yeah, it was a good, was a good dinner. Was it a was a good dinner. Right, two of everything, please. Is it cost saving? Is it more efficient? I think it's efficient and time. I think because the kitchen, and this is not something, this, like my experience of eating out is not that all the meals come out at the same time, but having watched The Bear, I know that that's important to the kitchen that all the meals come out at the same time. But, you know, we're always the people going, no, start without me. Don't wait for me. You start. Mm. But I think that menu design is so that everyone's stuff comes out at the same time they can make I don't know if they're making bigger portions of those things and then just putting it all on the plates I don't know but it's so that you know six people in a room they're not all having something different they're not all waiting I'm sure it doesn't know it doesn't always work I was reading this article that came out a few weeks ago in the AFR I put it in um 12 foot ladder because I don't pay for the AFR but by uh the food writer Jill Duplee and it's kind of summarized by like the glut of like anchovies sitting on a plate style (laughs) restaurant dishes Mm -hmm. it's so good it's it's called why all menus look the same and it starts off with this whole run all about kingfish crudo you know some places it'll be called a ceviche and some places it's called this and other places it's you know whatever and like it started at chin chin but now everyone does it but it's not just the crudo it's also like steak tartare and like dry aged duck and bommel I mean I'm not familiar with dry aged roast duck and bomb Alaska on all my menus but then the writer mentions burrata oh boy is it burrata and it's basically about the sameness of like you know, bistro style dining in Australia at the moment and not just the menu, but also like the look, the kind of averageness of like aesthetics that's happening. Um, you know, they quote someone as saying like Airbnbs are all white walls, mid-century furniture, exposed brick, coffee shops are Edison bulbs and reclaimed wood. I think that's starting to like leave the trend. Uh, I mean, it left a long time ago, but it's starting to make its way out. But <laughs> restaurants will have chalkboards, metro tiles, monochromatic sans serif typography. It's a really great piece. I'll link to it in the show notes, but it essentially gets to this idea that like the risk has to be gone in like menu planning now. Also because the like owner as the person who bears the risk of a restaurant and then the chef who gets to make the creative decisions is not how things really work anymore you're more off you're more often find like the owner chef you know so the person making the so-called creative decisions also has to be the one who's like oh well we'll sell a lot of kingfish crudo I guess that's what I have to make every night yeah I read this I have to read that article but um, I remember this one that came out a couple of months ago that I enjoyed about Australian restaurants deciding whether or not to take famous dishes off the menu or not, like if the chef didn't really want to make them anymore Mm. or they wanted to replace them with something new or 
there's just like one thing that they will always have on the menu. Um, it was really great. It was really interesting to kind of get that look into how yeah. the menu is put together. But I mean, like, God, I mean, I, there are certain places I go that I'm like, if this ever changes. Well, it's like a band. It's like, shut up and play the hits. <laughs> like, I come here, we come to this place for magic. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> it's true. It's so true. Um, speaking of restaurants, next week, Jinxie, can you give us some tips on myth food and drink recommendations, please? Yeah, I think that that's something for you to be doing too. Okay. You kind well, of get more downtime during it. You know them better than I do. But the, the corners of the city, I'm not a late night girl like you are either. You know, I like to go home early most of the time. I'm a last gal standing still, I have to say. Or if I've fallen down some stairs. <laughs> First girl on the floor, last girl standing. <laughs> We both managed to get out of the house for two films that we will be discussing this week. They are, of course, Barbie and Oppenheimer. I will not use the portmanteau. I refuse to. Imagine if I was like, and of course, it's the Meg 2 and Mission Impossible <laughs> 7. <laughs> the Meg 2, is that, a real, is that a real thing? Yeah, I'm really excited to see it after Myth. <laughs> I haven't seen the original Meg, but I feel like I just need some Meg in my life. <laughs> That's fair. Megan wasn't enough for you. No. Okay, so we both went out to see Barbie and Oppenheimer. I guess that's what we're going to talk about this week, BL. We're the only podcast that's doing it. Everyone's just waiting for our hot, hot takes. (laughs) Yeah, to decide if they're going to go and see these movies or not. No, we're assuming that people have seen them, that everyone's talking about them and reading stuff about them, so we're just going to have a little chat. Because also Jinxie and I have not discussed our thoughts and feelings about these two movies either. We sure have not. So, I mean, if you haven't seen either of them, take this as a spoiler warning. (laughs) Okay, Jinxie, I want to hear your thoughts and feelings about Barbie, first of all. I have been holding mine in for this very moment that we've been on mic together. I mean, you did write a whole article about it for the monthly, so you have not been holding it that much in. But I didn't read it until after I had mm-hmm. seen the film and I also have not discussed with it with you at all. I uh, was meant to go to the Sydney premiere, didn't end up heading up there. I still get those two confused. Um, but I actually had a much better time, I think, going to like a public screening at Palace Westgarth on Friday night Everyone there was in pink except for me and the two people I was <laughs> totally by accident, but um, that's Melbourne for you. None of my friends wore pink either, but I took my um, my Telfar bag <laughs> as a little, <laughs> my little Barbie accessory moment. I, I, gosh, I don't want to be the one who goes first on this, but I, because I feel like an absolute Grinch talking about it. Um, I didn't love Barbie. There was a lot in it that I really enjoyed. Um, I had a really good, fun time at the movies. I had an even better time after the movies sitting around talking about it with the people I'd seen it with and seeing, like, the streams of people coming out of the cinema or about to go in and everyone's excited. I haven't seen that in so long. It felt like a festival, really. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I mean, narratively, the film's a hot mess. Yeah, it's it it really loses its way like halfway or even maybe like a third of the way in. Like I feel like very ironically Barbie's role kind of wraps up when she leaves the real world and comes back to like Kendom <laughs> and like or almost earlier than that, like kind of when she's addressed all of the criticism that the real world like has to throw at her she doesn't really have very much else to do, which is a shame because I love Margot Robbie in this role. Like I think she did such an excellent job, but like those kind of real world criticisms that were thrown at her by America Ferrara's character's daughter, um, who seemed to kind of like come around in no time and never really spoke about her Barbie issues again. Did she have a line again after that moment in the cafeteria? Like she didn't really have much to do And it's very ironic for the message the film is sending about patriarchy and women's roles in the world to give the Kens so much more to do. 
And just all of the humour, all of the good lines, like everything really enjoyable was yeah. <laughs> unfortunately very Ryan Gosling got to have so focused. much fun and yeah. and and Barbie got to go to the gynecologist. I actually I loved that. that I was, did too. The ending was fantastic, but like great perfect closing line, no notes. Yeah. Many notes for what preceded it, however. Yes. Yeah, basically it was like guys are fun. <laughs> <laughs> Which is rock, actually. No, I loved all the horses stuff. That was one of my favorite things in the film. Yeah. Of course, the musical was then musical number was great. Ryan Gosling was like, what a great performance. Yeah. He's such a overwhelmingly earnest actor, and this role was so perfect for that. Totally, the perfect himbo. The rules of the world felt really shaky to me. Yeah, let's talk world logic, I think. Okay, so the idea that Margot Robbie's stereotypical Barbie starts getting, like, intrusive thoughts about dying and cellulite and all of these things comes from, we learn, from weird Barbie, of which there is only one. Yeah, and was she a stereotypical Barbie before she was a Barbie or did she have a role? Right? And there's only, I mean, of course, there's only one of each. There can't be a trillion of them. But um. So stereotypical Barbie learns that the the kid she assumes playing with her is having these thoughts and feelings and emotions. We learn that it's America Ferreira in real life, who is a Mattel employee, but like who was playing with all the other dolls? No one. Cause they were all kind of perfect in their box. No one's ever played with these dolls before. And if Barbie joins the real world and becomes a human stereotypical Barbie is there a replacement stereotypical Barbie in the Barbie world? Why would she want to join the real world as well? Like, I didn't understand why she would give up her, like, utopian life. I understand that she, like, had these experiences in the world. But, like, the point of the real Pearlman speech to her where she says, like, humans only have one ending, but ideas live forever – Hmm. And I was like, if you could choose between being a human and an idea, would you not want to be an idea? <laughs> I'm, uh, well, I mean, I guess nothing changes for stereotypical Barbie. True. She's not, she's not working on her presidential campaign. Um, yeah. She's not being a physicist or anything <laughs> like that. So, yeah. She's seen too much. Barbie has seen too much. Barbie's seen too much. I also had issues with the idea that, like, if there were kids playing with these Barbies, they would have been having some imitation of sex. Like the Barbies would not have been kicking the Kens out of their dream house. I'm speaking from experience of rubbing Barbies and Kens together. This is horny kid erasure. <laughs> the, the girl Barbies were not scissoring each other with like their legs all like splayed at weird angles. And I'm just going to put this down to like, I'm forgiving it because also it's a movie for ch- children. Yeah, totally. Um, but that Margot, Robbie and Greta Gerwig have said that every meeting they took with Mattel and Warner Brothers there were such long lists of things for them to all discuss that they had like issues with in the script or the film that they kind of got away with a lot because there wasn't just like one thing that each meeting was focusing on. So they kind of got to slip through the cracks, but I have a feeling that maybe Barbie sex was one of the things they couldn't, they couldn't move past. Yeah, I I think so. I, didn't have a lot of Barbies growing up. I had my sisters. She's I had all of her 70s Barbies, so very fun stuff in there. But I was once sent home from a friend's house, a slumber party, because I divorced her Barbie and Ken. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I think that says a lot about me. I'm a fucking riot girl. <laughs> Like I don't think eight or something. Love and I that. Was my parents did never divorced. Uh, I didn't have a lot of friends with divorced parents. <laughs> I think I was just watching like thirty something at home, basically. Like like I was just watching all this adult stuff <laughs> and um, divorce divorce them. And then she was so upset. I had to go home. Divorce Barbie. She wasn't there. She was collectible. I am obsessed with that. I don't remember any of the like 
special Barbies that I had. But once I, we must have been at like a big shopping center, like a few hours away from where we lived once. And I saw an Elvis doll, not a Barbie doll, but like Elvis in his 1968 comeback special leathers. A figure. A figurine, a collectible. And I wanted it so badly. And the next time my mum went there and went shopping without me, I, I was at home and I remember being like, she's coming back with the Elvis doll for me. He's going to be the hottest boyfriend for my Barbies. And she brought me home Disco Ken. Oh. So the idea in the film that like Ken's are these like rejects who no one really chooses actively, I was like, true. Because this like Ken in like a little silver vest, I was like, I hate him. (laughs) Yeah, um, magic earring Ken only in these parts for sure. Also like the big speech at the end where America Ferrera is like, there should be a Barbie who's just like normal. Maybe she's a mom. Maybe she's not a mom. Maybe she's just a lady. Maybe she's just average. I was like. I had Barbie post office. Like I had average play sets for my Barbies because she was just like stamping parcels and like delivering the mail. The third or fourth Barbie that we see in the entire film is a garbage Barbie. Yeah. A Garby, if if I may. (laughs) A Garby, sanitation worker Barbie. But like we see two Barbies taking the rubbish out and that also made me think about the hierarchy in the Barbie world, mm-hmm. of which we're led to believe there is no hierarchy because everyone has a role. But I don't know. Would mm. garbage Barbie be as happy as presidential Barbie? Yeah, she's cleaning up for them. Like, where is her uprising moment, you know? Who's cleaning up for her? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I, there's a lot <laughs> of those little things. And it's like, I'm trying not to do it so much with this film because I know who the target audience is, but like it's just one of those things. It's like if you, the logic of this film, if you unpick the tiniest thread, the whole goddamn hot pink sweater goes, you know, like there's nothing left. Yeah. So it's better to just accept it on the surface if that's what you're doing, I suppose. But unfortunately for me, I cannot do that. I am an unpicker. Um, I look I feel the same I feel like the logic of the film is really flimsy but I had I had a lot of fun watching it even if I couldn't really switch off my inner critic like watching America Ferreira's version of I should use her character name Gloria Gloria's version of the cool girl speech from Gone Girl but (laughs) G-rated and basically saying girls can do anything pick up a trade but I thought the exact same thing that that was the yeah Um, gone girl speech it's the gone girl speech for people who don't want to hear a girl talking about blowjobs but it's like women should be allowed to be this and we should be you know it's it felt to me in the moment of watching it like 2013 tumblr feminism of like I should be allowed to be bossy without being called a bitch and I would like reblog that shit and I'd put it on buy it on a mug or whatever but I think me now as a 33 year old person watching the film I was like oh come on and like people in my cinema like clapped and cheered after that that big speech but I think I've come around to it since since watching the film like I'm excited to go and see it again I had a fun time watching it and I think it's a fun movie to see I won't see it again yeah that's fair enough I've come around on like the big speech and like the the deprogramming side of the third act i found that to be a little like too neat and simple but i also you know i understand the film's audience is like so astronomical that the messages in it are ultimately a, like a, a an objective good you know they're even if it feels kind of played out and like you know, I said in my review, kind of like the kind of shit you'd see on like an Instagram tile that people would share and be like, slay mama. (laughs) But for people who aren't so online and don't have like brains broken by the internet and aren't just like inherently critical of everything, uh, okay, me, like if it's the first time you've heard any of that stuff and for a lot of people it's going to be, like it's pretty exceptional to hear it on such like a massive scale as in this movie you know sure totally it's you know it's for your niece yeah yeah it's very feminism 101 it's very t-shirt that says feminism it's very like it's tampon in a teacup (laughs) yeah 
it's no, it's not even that. It's more like the what was that Taylor Swift lyric? The key oh, ring. Oh, fuck the patriarchy. Yeah, key ring on the ground. It's very that. It's very Taylor Swift yeah. key ring. I actually can't believe Taylor Swift doesn't have a song on this soundtrack because it's. I was gonna say it's very Taylor Swift's The Man, the movie. <laughs> I really enjoyed Shard D'Souza's piece in the Guardian about the soundtrack. It was great. It was oh, really I haven't good. read it. I'm and then link it in the show notes. I would be remiss not to talk about the capitalism at play in this film. Oh, it is at play. Like the Mattel stuff was good at the beginning, like meta funny, Mm. but there's just no, it just doesn't let up. And Mm. by the end of the film, it's just like, oh, Barbie is actually everything. And it's we, actually great. And we just can, buy one now. Like Gloria saying, there should be just a normal average Barbie. And then them saying, that will really sell. And so that's why that message is received well. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it, exactly. So yeah. I found that a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. There were scenes within the real world that felt just like Barbie world. And then there were other scenes in the real world that felt like the real world. And I found that that was a difficult collision. Like I know that the Mattel offices downstairs are a reference to Jacques Tati's playtime. Great. Excellent reference. Greta, obviously with all of her great references, Proust, Barbie, etc. <laughs> but it just didn't feel, I don't know. I thought that was really misused. It felt like real life was Barbie life or well, something. Yeah, it felt like she had gone from this place that had its own its own logic into the real world, which we understand because we live there. We live in reality under a mm. patriarchy, etc. But there were also these kind of playful, uh, like fictional rules in the Mattel. Like is Mattel this kind of halfway liminal space between like the actual real world and Barbie world you know like the fact that there wasn't like a portal to there or something you Mm. know like because I agree like the knowing how much uh, influence she drew from like Jacques Tati for the office scenes especially I was shocked that they were the domain of like normal worker bee type people you know yeah Will Ferrell also was um like he wasn't living in a reality and it was fun like he's really funny and like charming but also like the the chase sequence set to that great charlie xcx song but like that was like all for comic effect and i was like this is are we not in the real world anymore yeah it didn't it didn't make sense to me and it felt very elf in the mail room in the movie elf you know It it was total elf yeah yeah um I, I don't know. I just, the more I think about it, the less I like it. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I had a mostly fun time watching it and I'm glad that so many people are going to the cinema and I'm glad that so many, like, women are going to the cinema um, and young girls. Like, that's great. Um, of course, it's, like, it's extremely binary and straight, but... Like that, that I can handle, that I can take. It's Barbie. It's fine. Um, I'm not expecting it to be like, do you remember there was that doll? That was like a viral hit when I was like, I don't know, in the 90s and it was called Feral Cheryl. No. It was like some Australian thing. I love her. Yeah, Barbie with leg hair basically. Yeah, look, I I actually found at one moment of the film, I was like, oh, my God, am I a Ken? Like... When the Steve Malkmus <laughs> reference yeah. happened, I was like, oh, God, I'm I'm the Ken. I'm yeah. the Ken. <laughs> the Kens all had interests and, like, cultural interests, and I get that, like, the idea of, like, a Ken, you know, a man lecturing you about, like, the Godfather or Stephen Malkmus is a gag, but it's also, like, all the Barbies had was, like, unbridled confidence like none of them (laughs) and a high self-esteem and like that's cool and a fantasy for sure but uh um it would have been fun for some of them to I don't know like a band too (laughs) yeah also did alcohol come just come in with the Kens because they were all drinking beer oh prior to that were I don't know. Were the Barbies drinking Cosmos? I don't know. Were Maybe. they having like a spicy margarita? I don't know. Skinny girl margaritas. Yeah. 
<laughs> Maybe in their disco dance sequence they were. Like I said, I loved Margot Robbie. I feel like when she became like quote unquote normal, all they did was not put concealer under her eyes and like not puff up her hair. Like she had no yeah. volume left in her hair and mm-hmm. it was supposed to uh, drive home the point that she was like normal again. I was like, okay, as Helen Mirren as the narrator pointed out like you kind of need to cast someone who's not Margot Robbie to get that point across yeah loved Issa Rae as President Barbie loved Michael Sarah as Alan love Alan Alan is a hero um okay so this is where I mentioned Love Island again okay here we go is Chris Taylor I believe is his last name who is a late entry to season five I've only just met him in the recent episodes is in the Barbie movie, Love Island UK superfan Margot Robbie not only invited a bunch of her favourite, like she, the the Love Island people who went to the London premiere of Barbie were like so random from different eras of Love Island and one of them was Chris Taylor and it turns out he's in the movie when they come back and it, the Kens have taken over and they award the uh, like Nobel Prize to one of the Kens that's him doing the awarding. Okay. Good to yeah. know, Bill. So I have to do a rewatch so I can spot him because I didn't notice, like I hadn't met him on Love Island the first time I watched the movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I think then you do need to go back and see it. <laughs> Especially if you came back and you're like, actually, it's a perfect film. Yeah. But I guess I don't need it to be a perfect film. I don't need that. But no. I wish it was... Yeah, like I, I don't. Yeah, I don't want to be that person. But I wish they'd done a a couple more passes at their like red string kind of plot board. You know, mm. it felt like undercooked and overbaked to yeah. me. Yeah, there was too much kind of going on. It was trying to do too many things, say too many things, and in doing so, didn't say very much at all. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I have to agree with you. I have one C also for Barbie and it's just uh, the recent episode of NPR's podcast, It's Been a Minute. Hannah McCann, who's from Melbourne, who is an academic who does a lot of work in like gender studies, especially around femininity, is on talking about bimboism and it's just Ooh. a really great convo with Brittany Luce, the host of that podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah. I want to listen to that. Well, like a total Ken, my C also for Barbie is I'm going to sit you down and ask you, have you seen Todd Haynes' superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, starring Barbies? I haven't. Wow. Okay. It's you on must. the list. You must. Can you play that at the film festival, please? I don't think actually anybody can play it. It's very much caught up in copyright issues uh, because it's based on the Carpenter's story, but it is told with Barbies. And you cannot play the music. Uh, so it's a total bootleg, bootleg only situation. He's so he's as punk as you, divorcing Barbie and Ken. <laughs> that's not punk. That is just being some, that's just not having limits on what television I was allowed to watch as a child. <laughs> <laughs> but look where it's got you, baby. Mm-hmm. And the other side of the coin is uh, a little movie, the sequel to Sarah Polly's Women Talking. <laughs> it's Men Talking, a.k.a. Oppenheimer by Christopher Nolan. Yeah, and ironically, Ben Wisher was the only man who was not cast in this film. Oh, my God. If you are a white male actor with any kind of facial recognition and you weren't <laughs> in Oppenheimer, you're a fucking flop. Because every man who's ever been in any movie was in Oppenheimer. They just kept coming. They just kept coming. It got to the point where my friend and I laughed every time a new man would, like we were Leonardo DiCaprio and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just <laughs> on the screen and looking at each other. She, she was leaning over to me going, shout out to Sarah. She was leaning over to me going, it's the foot fetish guy from Sex and the City. And then it's Richard from Sex and the City. <laughs> Yeah, I was doing the exact same thing to my pod partner, but I was who has total male facial blindness. I cannot believe Zoe made it through this movie. I really am curious about what her experience was watching it because there were just, it's all white men who famously she can't tell the difference between. I mean, maybe she thinks Oppenheimer was everybody, but... <laughs> She really enjoyed it. Um, but I was sitting there going, that's the guy that Jenny Schechter wrote, the tried to ghostwrite his book in the L word. <laughs> 
everyone was in it. Everyone. It was so nice to see Josh Hartnett again. Oh, it's been a minute. Wasn't um, it good? It, I just, has he been, what's he been doing? Like, I felt like, oh, my f- old friend, Josh So apparently Hartnett. he took time off from acting to raise his children. Oh, good for him. Cheek. He was hot um, throughout. David Crumholtz <laughs> was incredible. Like, has been such a reliable character actor my whole childhood. Adam's family values, 10 things I hate about you, etc. The Santa Claus. Oh, I'm not um I'm not up to speed on my Santa Claus. It's been a couple of decades. Uh he was also in Freaks and Geeks. He was Neil's older brother. Of course. I love him. I love David Cromholtz. And like him with like I'm assuming they put pros- a lot of prosthetics on him. Um and he like aged. He had the best aged makeup when they kind of fast forwarded through to the end when um Oppenheimer was like getting awarded for killing lots of people. Um Benny Safty, on the other hand, just had like talcum powder in his hair as the aged version of his just, scientist guy. I feel it's so stupid. Every time I see Benny Safty on screen, like in Licorice Pizza, it's just like, oh, it's my friend, Benny Safty. Yeah, it's everyone's <laughs> friend, Benny Safty. Oh, it's our friend, Benny Safty. Look, <laughs> he has made it. He's made a good go of it. I feel the same sometimes seeing like Mark Duplass. I'm like, oh yeah. Oh, it's my guy. Someone once said that about Laura Dern on Twitter. It's like, oh look, it's our friend Laura Dern. And I feel that way every time she pops up on screen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, how did you get on set, babe? Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> Give me a ring. I want to catch up. <laughs> um I had to Google his name because I just was like, Hereditary, the guy with the mole on his face, Alex yeah. Wolf. Yeah, I was um, like, brother, brother from Hereditary. Hereditary brother, um, Josh Peck, who was a, like a child star. He, play- he had quite a pivotal role. He was the guy who had to like press the button if the bomb didn't go off. He had oh, little yeah. glasses on. Yeah, he was a yeah. child actor, as was Michael Enganaro from Eleven from Almost Famous. Oh, yeah. His face was in like two shots, two shots of Oppenheimer, but I spotted him. Leaving the cinema, my friend said how good um, Pacey from Dawson's Creek was and I had to tell her that was Jack Quaid, Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid's son. (laughs) Yeah, it was like, oh, that's one I did not pick. Yeah. (laughs) Rami Malek, who had like three, I mean, he had a very essential scene at the end of the film, but like three scenes every all the guys were just like chris i'll be in your movie (laughs) do you know what for almost the whole film i thought rami malik was what's his name pete what's the pete pete from snl pete davidson yeah i thought it was pete davidson Imagine Pete Davidson in Oppenheimer. That's what I. That's what I thought. Because his first, the first time you see him. Hey, hey, guys. Uh, you want to go toke a ball near this fucking bomb? <laughs> but the first time you see him, he like drops something really comically, and I thought, oh, oh yeah. god, he, he's just going to be doing this all the time. I'm and then I got, then got to the end, and I was like, that's Rami Malek. Oscar winner Rami Malek. <laughs> yep. Um, I wrote in my notes. Casey Affleck, we're still doing that. Yeah, are we? That gave me a shock. I guess we're still casting. I, I guess you can't have a World War II movie without an Affleck. We got Damon. Yeah, you got Damon, I suppose. I mean, what was the last thing I saw him in? A ghost? I don't think I've seen him since a ghost story. He was in Manchester by the Sea. I was going to say that one, and then he got cancelled during that press tour. That's right. Yeah. And the last guy, on the last white guy on my list was um, Peter Aitken, who I didn't know, don't have name recognition for, but I recognize his face because he was in The Sound of My Voice. He was the, you know, one of the two leads who went to infiltrate the like culty uh, Brit Marling crew in The Sound of My Voice. And he played Klaus Fuchs, the guy who was like selling their, or like sending their intel back to the Russians. Mm. A bunch of guys. There's so many guys. It isn't like guys rock and making bombs is the is the takeaway from from Oppie. Yeah. And like in Barbie with the Kens, mm. they love horses. Guys love horses. They really love horses and like having their own space. Mm. Like these are two movies about the importance of a man cave. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right. <laughs> as it, it came to me as I was saying it. Um, 
Yeah, uh, and like we didn't mention the you know the headline guys, Killian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., etc. Um, also, didn't mention the women, of which there are two. Mm. There are only oh, two. There are three. There are three. Who's the third one? We've got Olivia. You're right, Olivia Thirlby. My mistake. Who needs to play a young Emily Blunt, right? Like immediately. Or they could play mother daughter or like sisters, you know. Yeah, sisters maybe. I I look. You don't go to this movie wanting lots of women talking to you. I, this is very much men talking. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I absolutely agree. Like I wasn't going to see Oppenheimer or any Christopher Nolan movie to like watch a woman's experience on the screen. Um, I was So I was kind of pleasantly surprised at how much Emily Blunt had to do, her character Kitty, how pivotal that role became later in the story. Like she had that great, transatlantic name and accent kitty loved it um, she's, i just love i love emily blunt i was so pleased her. that she was in this apparently um and i don't know if i missed this in the film or maybe they just didn't mention it at all but like his wife in real life was like a biologist a botanist like she was a scientist in her own right and i feel like we just kind of got like homemaker wife who was drinking too much and like furious no one listened to her and like all the scenes of her kind of screaming at what was really going on and the men just ignoring her I I kind of I had a moment of like she like throws a glass at him at one point when she's like it's Strauss I was like this is Nora Ephron telling everyone in DC who Deep Throat was but nobody listened <laughs> to her <laughs> and they're just like we just care about the salad dressing yeah but yeah it was like the start of the film was like half an hour of like men talking about like theory and you know potentially poisoning a professor with cyanide albert einstein standing by a pond and then a woman speaks like 40 minutes in and like a second later it's like florence Pugh tits out like riding him as he <laughs> recites the bit about like becoming death from the in Sanskrit from the Bhagavad Gita and she like puts him back inside her as he's saying it. I was like, this movie is crazy. Yeah, look, try watching that in IMAX on <laughs> <laughs> from the third row. Oh, my God, the third row. Mm, largest screen in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, yeah, it was quite a lot. I'm glad I saw it in IMAX, though. I mean, it was shot for IMAX. So what an experience. But um, that particular scene was quite a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, it's not the spectacle you're expecting when you no. went to see it in IMAX. No, did um, you like it? We, we've talked about the cast, but... <sighs> What's your take? It was... What's your hot take approximately a week after it's come out? (laughs) My hot take on Oppenheimer is that it's, like, obviously very impressive and it's, like, a spectacle. It's, like, incredible to look at. I'm sure it's, like, historically accurate and very important, but I feel like the, the pains to make this story as accurate as it needed to be, I guess, was that it was just the end was so boring. Like it just, it went for way too long and it truly was, I'm sorry, just men talking until the moment they prepared to test the bomb. And then we finally got like some cinematic kind of like, you know, moments where we could just interpret what was happening or what people were feeling or thinking. And they weren't all just saying things to one another. This makes me sound like an absolute dumb bitch, but like, I know that like the morality kind of line running through the film obviously hinges on the detonation of the atomic bomb. And then after that, I felt like the film kind of, it lost a lot of steam without that to build up to. But at the same time, I was kind of kicking myself for going like, you're not supposed to, you don't want to celebrate that thing. Like the, you know, obviously the film doesn't want you to think that that was a good thing to happen for the world. It's objectively a destruction of humanity. But at the same time, like, I think I feel like they were celebrating his achievement and framing him as the hero of this project and then the film went on to make him to make us appreciate him as a victim of like political bureaucracy. So we had to come out feeling empathetic towards the hero of the film despite all that he had done. Hmm. I kind of disagree. Yeah. I don't feel that it set him up as 
a victim as such as the idea that science is so at odds with um, government or the military and so here he was, he couldn't help himself essentially. He created this, you know, the most destructive thing we've ever known and until Sonia Morgan came along, sorry, um, <laughs> but... <laughs> no, he, you know, he created this, he put this, like, horror in in motion, essentially, to, because his ego couldn't not, and yes. uh, because science was leading up to that point, we were at that point in humanity where that's where research was going and we were It's like it was inevitable it might as well be me, kind of. Yeah, yeah. hideous, hideous thing to think or say, yeah. but essentially, uh, and then... He did this, like he created this terrible thing and then it was just taken from him and all the scientists. So there was just, he was um, made absent from any kind of the morals of the thing or the ethics of the thing. I, mm. That's that's what I thought. I didn't feel, like I, at no point did I feel any empathy for yeah. Oppenheimer or... I mean, you feel empathy for Kitty, maybe, because she's been dragged through this, taking yeah. the sheets out, putting yeah. the sheets in. But I did like the film quite a lot. I, mm. I think I probably liked it more than I thought I would. Um, mm. Would you ever I, watch it again? Probably mm. in that, no, I'm not going to watch that again. What am I saying? I'm not watching Oppenheimer again. I haven't even seen Tenet. I'm not watching it again. Yeah. Um, but much of the dialogue felt quite stilted. Mm. Um at times I felt like I was watching a parody of 12 Angry Men. Me too. Um, yeah, me too, absolutely. And I could, I think, I don't know if it was that I am not used to that kind of dialogue or conversation in his particular films or, I, like, I just could never get into the rhythm of the film, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I was following the the actions and the motivations and like the the kind of especially the ego kind of dispute between he and Robert Downey Jr.'s character especially at the end um when his kind of morality had really taken hold and that was taking place like 10 years after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki but I mean I really enjoyed the the kind of moral thread running through the film before I, I obviously know that Christopher Nolan isn't like endorsing his actions or celebrating them and doesn't like that is absolutely not the story that the film is telling at all and the performances aren't leading there but like you know David Krumholtz as this kind of you know consultant or advisor on the project kind of ruling himself out immediately at the start being like the science is one thing but the like the destruction is another mm. Olivia Thurlby, you know, running that kind of conversation group to kind of go, why are we doing this? Hitler's dead. And I was like, oh, God, I, my kingdom for a, like, title card telling me when <laughs> these <laughs> these conversations are taking mm. place. But, yeah, I feel like he kind of he grasped that moral opposition, like, truly too late. My favourite scene, the most gripping, like, kind of um, – uh, impressive scene in the film was the one I thought where everyone in Los Alamos is celebrating the bombing of Japan and yeah. you know this the sound and his vision starts cutting out and he imagines one woman's face kind of melting off and I think that actor is Christopher Nolan's daughter um mm. and then like you know he's he imagines he's stepping on like a burnt corpse of a person like I the 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 idea of him as like the villain hero, I really appreciated that scene, but um, yeah, I found it so difficult to kind of connect to a lot of the film. Yeah, I uh, look, I, I agree. I'm, I'm, I do feel that as well. There's a really amazing piece in because I wanted to refresh my memory before we jumped on the podcast, so I googled like, <laughs> what did Einstein say to <laughs> And I found this really great piece by uh, Bill Gateberry in Vulture, um, and the title of the article is kind of misleading because it's about like Oppenheimer ending explained, and but it it talks about. Um, not just the the moment where we finally see it from Oppenheimer's perspective, and I believe the cut the scenes in color are his perspective. The scenes in black and white are Strauss's, mm -hmm. um, 
It took me a while to figure that out because um, I thought. Because you think it's a time jump. I thought they were flashbacks, but in mm. reality, he didn't meet Strauss until after mm. he had done everything. Took um, me a while to be able. Don't worry. <laughs> thanks, Jinxie. I was um, like, "Is this the past?" But hang on, we're in the future. This is not the future. Yeah, I have like that. Christopher Nolan, he's kooky when it comes to time. Huh? Um, you know, he he has this moment. Is this with- the real world or is it Barbie world? <laughs> it's confusing. So when Oppenheimer steps into Barbie land, <laughs> AKA Princeton, he meets this kooky <laughs> old guy. I wanted to laugh every time Einstein was on screen. I don't know if that's the feeling you got, but his performance was so like Smee from hook. <laughs> I think it's also that everyone's like, Oh, haha, it's Einstein. And you kind of wait for him to turn around and stick his tongue out. Like that very <laughs> famous profile yeah. photo. He's so kooky. But, you know, he says to him, like, you know, you all thought that I'd lost the ability to understand what I had started, but you now have to deal with the consequences of your achievements. And this piece kind of goes on to talk about the way that the consequences of his achievement plague him and the the idea that like becoming death, becoming the bearer of death, the creator of death, links to the Florence Pugh story. It links to, you know, the visions he was having at the start of the film as a kid when he's like obsessed, he can't sleep because he's thinking about this kind of like universe and all the flashes that we see, which I'm sure are beautiful on IMAX, are like, you know, stars and galaxies. And like, he's trying to understand, um, what is it? Physics? I don't fucking know. And then by the end, it's blasts, it's missiles, it's fire it's death like he's his mind has been overtaken with the things that he created Mm. um which are all destructive at the start he was so full of like potential and wonder and like wanting to know what was out there and then he created something that it only points to the end yeah i mean look i think from the beginning he was gonna poison that teacher (laughs) he had it in him the whole time i want to see that movie of like a freaky little scientist like going around injecting apples and going all deadlock on like the men of princeton (laughs) i've got a question yeah do you think that what einstein said to oppenheimer in that moment is the same thing that bill murray said to scarlett johansson in lost in translation (laughs) What are the chances? They'll pat you on the back. They'll tell you all is forgiven. (laughs) They'll give you awards, but it won't be for you. It'll be for them. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly it. I I think Sofia Coppola told Christopher Nolan that. (laughs) They're friends. They summer together. (laughs) I have a seat also for a movie I just want to exist, which is Alden Ehrenreich playing JFK. I see it. He was incredible, especially at the end of this film. His, like, final parting shot to Robert Downey Jr. was phenom. But also, like, my favourite part of Oppenheimer was making a little town to, like, do science in. Um, And I just really enjoyed that. But also, see, also a much more fun movie that involves someone being investigated for ties to communism, Julie and Julia. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) Do you have any? I got none. Okay, um, I have one more then. There's an app called GoPee. I know this app. <laughs> yeah, you put in the movie you're going to see at the cinema. It gives you uh, times like two to three minutes of the film that you can safely miss and then tells you what happens. And so in this one, there's a lot of like, can my brother get security clearance to come to the desert? No. What about this? Where's the flux capacitor or whatever? You know, like <laughs> GoPee, babe. <laughs> All right, Jinxie, it's time for also also's. I'm so excited to hear your first one. My first one is a where also. It's a website. It's Australian-based. It's called Homeroom. So it's homeroom.com.au. It launched a couple of weeks ago by a stylist and a communication strategist. And it's kind of a directory of Australian labels, fashion labels, But it also focuses on areas like environmentally ethical fashion, First Nations designers, different sizing, etc. They do like call outs on Instagram. So if you're like, I want to go and get something, but I don't have time to try them all on, you just have a look and see what they've picked out. It's really good. 
It's such a good follow. My first one is a read also. It's a book called Glossy by Marissa Meltzer. I just finished it last week. It is the story of Glossier and Emily Weiss. And it kind of starts with her being the super intern on the hills and goes through kind of the many years of into the gloss, being a girl boss, starting Glossier, leaving Glossier, and a lot of interviews in between that Marissa Meltzer conducted for like publications over the years, and also interviews for this book, for which Emily Weiss seemed to get kind of more and more like evasive and suspicious of the story that was being told about her. She kind of took a lot from like Steve Jobs and like, um, you know, shoe dog, Phil Knight, like tech and the founders of big companies and tried to emulate them. And the more she did, the more kind of distance she created between like her and the girls she was selling lip gloss to. Um, it's a really juicy read and I'm very excited for it to come out and everyone to be able to dig into it. My next one is a uh, tights also. It's a company called Snag Tights. They're based in Scotland. They ship all over. I stupidly thought that they were an Australian company because they have an Australian website like .com.au but <laughs> then the shipping seemed to take a little while. Uh, these were recommended to me by my very tall friend Mish. Never owned a pair of tights in my life. Like not since I was like 10 or something that have been tall enough that I do not need to wear an extra layer over the top to keep mm-hmm. them up. Mm-hmm. This is the first time I've ever had it. It's a revelation. Stag are my fave. They're very plus size friendly as well. Mm, yes. My next one is a snack also. There's a little uh, food shop on Peel Street in Collingwood called QQQ Street Kitchen and they sell really delicious onigiri, uh, handmade to order, I believe. Um, they have like a little section where you can sit down, but I usually just pop into the window and get like a green tea and I like spam onigiri to go, please. And it's delish. Oh, that's so close to me. Mm. I need to go. Um, My last one is a talk also. We mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but now the full details have been fleshed out. I'm talking about the MIF talk. It's part of our MIF festival. It's called Consuming Culture. It's happening on Saturday the 12th of August, 2 p.m. at the Wheeler Centre. The event is free. You just need to RSVP, so we'll link to it on Instagram or you can go to the MIF website or the Wheeler Centre website. The one and only Brodie Lancaster, have you heard of her? <laughs> she she be moderating this one. And we've got a really great lineup of guests. We have Julia Basutil Nishimura, a.k.a. Julia Ostro, uh, Michael Sun and Kelly Weston, uh, a critic from the US who will be in town. And so everyone's going to be hashing out their cultural habits what they've been watching, what they've been reading, what they haven't been reading, what they haven't been watching. It's going to be really fun. I'm so excited. I love being able to uh, sit on a stage and say, what do you reckon, guys? (laughs) (laughs) My last one is a, I don't know, what do we say, lips also. It's the... Sheen Screen SPF 50 Hydrating Lip Balm from Ultraviolet. They're an Australian brand of SPF. I wear their face sunscreen, their body sunscreen, although it's is the body one is very coconutty and I did get very burnt in Sydney after wearing it. But the lip balm, can't fault it. I just reordered after I kind of uh, squeezed the heavens out of my last tube and I ordered <laughs> it in... I thought I was getting the same color. I accidentally got a different color than the one that I thought I liked, but I ordered rose and it's a really nice subtle color. And it's nice to know that like your lips are protected from the sun. Not a thing I ever thought I would be concerned about, but apparently we should. Oh, you should. Yeah. I don't want to have to get anything cut out of my lips, you know? The sun can reach every nook and cranny, Bill. I truly can. She's a sneaky gal. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of See Also. For those asking, yes, we will be talking about And Just Like That. We will do like a big catch up when the season has finished. Warning to you, I'm kind of a Shea apologist after this week's episode, maybe. Anyway, (sighs) that's something to discuss. Get over to Apple Podcasts and give us a little review. Five stars and something nice. That would be great. Thank you. Yeah, leave us something nice, please. 
If you're not already, follow us on Instagram at See Also Podcast. We'll be back next week. Thank you as always to Samuel Hodge for our artwork and Harvey Sutherland for our imagery. See ya. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.